Well, we want to welcome you to another episode of, we call them episodes, another podcast. Episode sounds like something on Saturday morning TV, you know. It's it's episodic, yeah. It is episodic. I, I like episodes. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Passports and Poets. Oh. Conversations about the power of place, the places that change us, and why it matters. I am your co-host, Dr. Chick Morgan, the Cowgirl PhD, and along with my wonderful co-host, Rodney Bursil. The I believe I've been given photographer in chief. Yes, you have. And also gallery owner. And gallery owner. Amazing now. new gallery here in Wimberley, Texas, where we broadcast from, or at least today. Um, and it's called Rodney Bursil at Base Camp gallery. And that's it. So you'll probably hear a lot more about that off and on. And we're not even doing ads. <laughs> we don't have sponsors. We just like to talk about your gallery. <laughs> and today, let's see, do we have any announcements or any good news that's come our way? Well, didn't you tell me that our, um, our producer just got an award? Yes. Brock Glenn Thomas, our wonderful producer, lifesaver, get us out of trouble, make us look better than we would ever hope to be. Just received an award today. I am going to get the name of the organization wrong. I think it's the Texas Radio Association as a broadcaster um, award for keeping the radio station here in Wimberley on the air during the recent snowpocalypse back in February, which was no small feat. Uh, I was stuck in my house for five days, so the Mm. fact that they were able to get there and Get to the studio. I know. How'd they do that? I don't know. Everything was snowed in, iced in, and today it's, what, 98 or something? (laughs) And we are so grateful. (laughs) I have a a question during the snow apocalypse, as you call it. Did anyone think to make snow ice cream? My niece did. (laughs) It is the most. No, it was actually snow cones, not snow ice cream. Uh, It is so delicious. My mom made some when I was, I don't know, seven or eight one time in memphis and uh which didn't snow there very much so yeah she pulled it in and poured vanilla in it and stirred it up and i mean it was now where were you when we could have used that information back in february (laughs) (laughs) i think we're all just so frantic about what the heck is happening (laughs) yeah it's pretty nuts but that's a great recipe and i remember that from my childhood so I was too busy trying to find firewood to keep the house warm. <laughs> yeah. We had friends figuring out what chair they were going to burn next, yeah. in all seriousness. <laughs> Seriously. There was yeah. nothing. Well, anyway, we didn't have to endure that for you, more than a week. You survived it. Congratulations. We did survive it. Way to be. Yeah, we can all tell some stories about that, I think. But that's not our focus today, because our focus today is to welcome the wonderful Donnie Wynn. Yay, drum roll. By the drummer. Yeah. And you're going to learn a lot about Donnie, as I have. Um, and he is, among other things, a famous and revered drummer. We'll hear more about that later. Mm-hmm. He's a producer, a songwriter, a writer of short stories and novels, I understand. Did your novel get out? And uh, Still have, looking for a I, home, maybe? I have or? written a lot of stuff, but I didn't want to put it out there until I felt I was better. As a writer, and that's mm. kind of happening now. Well, something excellent. happened during the pandemic that it pushed that down the oh, road. Oh, great! We can't wait to hear about that. Mm. And in addition to everything else, Rodney, this must be of particular interest to you. He's an amazing photographer. 
is. Now, is that how you all met? No, actually, it, it, it was the the crazy Wimberley Vortex. Oh, man. Yeah, I've, I've got some friends here in town. In fact, we discussed, they came up in last week's podcast, but Larry and Elizabeth and... We, they, that was kind of social headquarters where everybody hung out on the weekends. And Donnie was friends with the, y'all met in Nashville, I believe. Wasn't yes. It? Yeah. Larry is um, a guitar player for Edwin McCain. And it's, I don't know what's, how y'all met originally, but that's, that's how I met Donnie was through Larry and Elizabeth. Yeah. Larry and I had met when I first was looking to move to Nashville, I was just inquiring about different types of musicians and what I could expect, and his name came up quickly. And yeah, it was a it was a good good point because he was an excellent musician, and he and I were playing in a band, a Cuban band. Really? Yeah, a bunch of Cuban. We were the only two white people. Yeah. <laughs> there was thirteen other Cubans. Wow. It was a hell of a band. Orquesta Mando Pingas was the name of it. And I don't want to translate that over the <laughs> air, but uh, but uh, anyway, she came. Thank to, you for not doing that. Exactly. <laughs> you, you could do that on your own if you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> Look it up, folks. Get a translation. And she uh, she came down with me one night to see the band, and I introduced them, and I saw it happen. I mean, immediately, bang, and it was something that occurred, and they were kind of inseparable from that moment on. Now, Donnie, Rodney knows that these are the the things that pique my curiosity. I am most familiar with you for being the the drummer with Robert Palmer's band. So I made your ass move too. Yeah, I I was addicted to addicted to love and uh, that whole. Well, in fact, I was your hats on covering it on the CD player over there. I was just getting in the mood earlier. I see. So, well, what I'm curious about, and that that doesn't sound that sounds like that might have come later than what you're talking about with a Cuban band. So, how do two guys get hooked up with thirteen Cubans? Is that a story you can tell on the air? It's not really a story to it, except uh, <laughs> I, I had lost a bass player. We had drafted a bass player for Robert's band. From We actually stole him from Marvin Gaye's band. We were having dinner in, in we were Yeah, we were having dinner in Paris. And we there were, he goes again. And we, were, and we were looking for a bass player, and Robert had bought the Hear My Dear recording of Marvin's, which was basically a way for him to pay his wife off in the divorce. She got 100% of the record, royalties, everything. And so we were listening to that record, and this bass player was leaping out to us. He was fearless. He was melodic. He was wonderful. We kept looking like, is this, are we hearing this? Yes. And we called his Marvin's office the next day, and within two weeks he was on a flight to the Bahamas, and we stole him. But I had I had discovered in Wimberley, actually, now that I think about it, I was here doing a recording with a, a rather eccentric gentleman, very wealthy fellow who would find places to go all over the world and would hire a chef to work 24 hours a day, and then he would fly musicians in from everywhere hmm. and pay them quadruple scale and uh, to stay and live and just make stuff up. And we were in Wimberley, and I was here with the bass player, and there was an incident, let's just say, that was very bizarre. And uh, come to find out, 
my bass player was riddled with um, paranoid schizophrenia. And I always thought it was drinking or whatever substance abuse that had led to his episodes that we had on the on the road from time to time. But no, it was way more than that. And uh, so when this happened, I realized I could not work with him any longer. So I'm in uh, Nashville now, and I'm one night I'm watching this guy play George Marinelli. He's a very he's a great guitar player. Been with Bonnie Raitt many years. But anyway, it was one of his shows, and this bass player was boom again, just fearless, leaping out to me. And it was Manny Giannis. It's uh, he's a Cuban, and through him, I met all these Cubans, and the door just kind of opened for us and. And yeah, I was producing stuff a lot then. And so, yeah, we got in the middle of it. That's kind of how that all came about. Well, one of the things I've, I've learned about you, and I'm late to this relationship, Ronnie. Y'all have known each other for. Dad. Never mind. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20 years. 20 years okay, at least. So, yeah. I'm a newcomer, at least to a, a personal relationship here. But one of the things that um, I read about you, and I, I like to look at people's YouTubes and some of your um, presentations that you gave about music, which I want to talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But how you, one of the things that you tell uh, young people, other musicians, is to listen to absolutely everything. And I guess that opens you up to, hey, Cuban band, great, why not? <laughs> absolutely. You know, and, and, and I've always been, I look forward to challenges. You know, how can I make myself better? What work do I have to do to make that happen? And I love challenges. And that was the thing about Cuban music is everything I had learned in Western music had nothing to do with Cuban music, zero, zippity, because everything on Western music is on the downbeat. Everything's on the downbeat. Everything in Cuban music is on the upbeat. Everything. So to even be able to get involved with the Cuban band, he had to give me a bunch of records, and I had to sit down like I did when I was a kid, put on the headphones, and just learn to play everything lick for lick and retrain my body, which only understood downbeat western, to understand upbeat. And it opened up a huge new world for me uh, as far as a player and everything else is concerned. And, I, and also as a listener, you know, being able to appreciate that music and what it does and where it was going. Because it, uh, when I met Manny, everything was kind of changing. There, our music industry was changing. Music was changing. There was more hybrid music being made because of the influx of players from all over the place playing with each other. It was a magical time, but also while the music was getting better, our industry was collapsing. <laughs> so it was kind of kind of a strange time as well. What part of it was collapsing? The whole thing. The, the industry, uh, be it CBS, be it, you know, whoever, it was all collapsing. Uh, in uh, when they started Napster, that began. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, Gee. yeah, yeah. mid nineties. Yeah, and that uh, hmm. that gave them a freedom to listen to the music they wanted when they wanted without having to pay for it. And to them, it was a novel thing. But very quickly, I remember Robert Palmer, who I was working with for a long time at that point. He stopped. He saw it coming because we had done a record for EMI America 
we thought it was our best record that we had ever done, and we were pretty sharp about that. And the company was sold two months before our record was due to come out. Mm. And when they did that, well, the new people wanted nothing to do with what the old company had done. So this record that we had worked you know, years and years and years and worked hard to develop and do and just got thrown in the trash. Mm. And it wasn't just us. Yeah. It was all <clears throat> over the place. And when that also happened, there was nothing there to go to. It was done. It was over. Everything was, they were scrambling to try to figure out what was happening and what they needed to do. And they made every wrong decision mm. that could be made. So, and, yeah, the whole industry collapsed. So, what did that, and so that particular record still never saw the light of day, or is it? It's it's out there. It's, it's called okay. Honey. Okay. Brilliant record. And everyone that hears it just flips out over it. You know, it was a great record. There's just no other no two ways to go about it. It was a great record. But and there was worldwide singles all over it. But nothing. Because yeah, everything was collapsing at that time. One of the stories I either heard you tell or I read, um, with about Robert Palmer when he wanted you all were going to do a record and was it in was some African beat or music culture and instead of saying go listen to this he sent you there mm-hmm. and and why why was he such a strong believer in that he I don't know there's there's a lot of things about because I find that fascinating, that it's not just what comes in your ears, it's the whole well, he, absorbing the culture. Yeah, he didn't want you to just copy it, mm-hmm. listen to a record and just copy it, which any good musician can do. No, he wanted you to eat with them, he wanted you to sweat with them, and have it be a part of you. And uh, he was really smart yeah. when he said that, because yeah. it did make all the difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, once... We were able to absorb that sort of understanding. Then it was time to come do something about it. And that's when we would record hmm. using whether it was just an approach or whether it was a particular song he had written based upon, I think you're talking about the imbuter. That's right. I uh, couldn't which remember. Is Western that. African. Right. Yeah, it's two time signatures at once. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. It's pretty complex. Wow. Not hmm. to them, but to mm-hmm. us it was. But yeah, we were able to to get things figured out. Yeah, he was brilliant like that. He yes, was brilliant uh, like that on a lot of levels. How how long did it take you guys to to make a record? If you're you're so you're going and doing all this research, and then do you come back a year later and then write songs? Or it'd usually be six months. There'd be a, a time where we would be in the field, learning and doing, and then we would come back into pre production and and then just install it where we needed it, and then shortly thereafter go into the studio and get with it, you know. Well, Rodney knows I have a fascination with um, Robert Palmer. In fact, I actually have over in the bookshelf over there a Black Bob Palmer Girl wig I was going to wear. <laughs> a black sheath, high heels, but he wouldn't bring his Telecaster for me to sling over the shoulder. I thought it might get in the way, but uh, it was uh, it was just so much about uh, that music, and of course, who can't hear you know the drums on that without oh, yeah, it just going right it's, to your it's soul? Some of the most. 
Iconic. recognizable <laughs> drum beats. You know, yeah. it's, Luckily, he he understood that in a mix or with music, the singer is out front and the drummer is right behind him. Mm. And then everything else falls in place around that. So he always had a love for the drums. And as when things were being mixed, yeah, the drums always had to be up there featured behind him. So... Hey. Hey. <laughs> so that was so right no argument there, yeah, right? Zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so before we get too far ahead, let's back up. I want to I'd like to hear more. I because I, I as long as I've known you, I don't think we've ever had this conversation just about your relationship with Robert and how y'all met and, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, where did that begin? Because you you were with him from the beginning, weren't you? Or pretty he pretty close? Well, he pretty much drafted me right out of high school. Yeah, uh, you're, I, you're speaking literally, not metaphorically. Then, yeah, right out of high school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'd worked with Doctor John while mm-hmm. I was in high school, so I was kind of getting ready for it. But uh, it was it, it's kind of a, a protracted tale. Uh, I had been fired from a really brilliant record that was being made in Louisiana with just Louisiana people. It was a bunch of older guys from New Orleans and South Louisiana. And I was the big hotshot. I was 15 at the time. And so everybody heard about me, wanted me to be, and they hired me to be on their record. But they weren't aware that I had never, ever been on a record before. It was mm. My reputation was was garnered through live playing. That's where I was doing most of my work. And these guys didn't know it. And they hired me. And <laughs> I, I, had terrible, I had terrible time, and they fired me. Really? And it flipped me out. And I remember walking down the hallway after they fired me when I realized I was in way over my head and had no idea what they were even talking about. Pocket, what is that? What is pocket, you know? And I went down the hallway, and they were playing this Barbara Mandrell record that they had done in this studio. This is a studio in the country in Bocalusa, Louisiana. And um, I didn't want to you know, get in these people's way, so I walked in, and they said, well, we're just here doing this. I said, well, let me get out of your way. But by that time, another song came on, and it had the most beautiful pocket where the drums sat. And it was just big and royal and just so integral. And I just sat down and listened. And I went, oh, that's what these guys are talking about. Because I had chops for days. I mean, but I didn't know pocket. I didn't get it. I didn't even know about it. And but I was hearing it, and I knew that this guy, whoever he was, had it. And I asked her, I said, who is this? They said, Larry London. I had never heard of him. Now, he was a white guy who grew up in Motown but really owned Nashville at that time. And so I said, well, I, I know what I'm going to do. I don't want to ever face getting fired again. I'm going to go home and practice with these records and listen to everything they've done and learn it lick for lick. You know, every record, lick for lick. And then once I've got that done, I think I'll be ready to come back. And so I quit everything I was doing at that time and took a year off. And uh, one record in particular that I really liked, and it was ironic because Robert had already worked with them, was with Little Feet, uh, the Pressure Drop record. You know, he had, if you listen to Sneak and Sound, he said, oh, that slide guitar, that's Lowell. 
he was down there just hanging. He's not even listed, you know, in, on the recording. But Robert and him were big buddies. And so Robert hired Little Feet to be the backing band for that pressure drop record. And that's when I was like, I like this guy. Because <laughs> Little Feet was my favorite band at that time. So this record, it was called The Last Record Album. It became my Bible. Because everything they did on it, it was such great writing and such great approaches to the with the rhythm section. What they did, it was so un, it was not ordinary. And I was like, well, this teaches me everything I really am wanting to learn. So I did. I played it lick for lick, and then I was working with my dad. He owned a bunch of businesses. He was very successful, and. He was wanting to give it to me by the time I was 28. That was our deal. And uh, so I was trying. I was working in all the different areas of his companies and going to schools in Dearborn and Atlanta and was just hating every minute of it. I couldn't find my way. It just did not boil in my blood like it did my father's. So I go to the studio in town just to get away for a, an hour. And he played me these songs, the studio owner played me these songs that he had just recorded with a guy named Leo Nocentelli, who was the lead guitarist for the band called The Meters, a very famous band out of New Orleans. And um, so I got real excited about it, and I was kind of bold, and I was like, and, and the studio owner was also a drummer, and he had just been kind of, this is before drum machines. <laughs> mm. And he hired me on the spot. I said, let me let me let me play on these songs, which was kind of bold because again, it was asking him to for me to replace everything he had just done. But he was nice enough and understood me and said, "Well, yeah, have a crack," and I did, and I was able to put forth everything into those tracks that I had been learning for that year. You know, I was able to put it in practice for the first time. Now. Leo came to the dealership where my dad was and told me, he goes, what are you doing here? You should be playing music. You don't need, you should not be here. You should be playing music. And it just struck a chord with me because I was feeling that anyway. Because I've been, I've been playing music all my life. I mean, I was wearing fake mustaches, playing with older guys when I was 11, you know. I mean, doing research papers on pool tables, you know. It was just that kind of existence. And... Uh, so anyway, I, I I had a talk with my dad. I was like, I really want to pursue this. I got I've got to give this a shot, you know. Otherwise, I'll never know. And he agreed and stood up, shook my hand, said, "What can I do to help mm. you?" You know, yeah. gave me a five hundred, yeah. gave me a five hundred dollars a month to live on from the company, you know, which enabled me in nineteen seventy seven to exist. That was a fortune. Angels. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I went out there, and the one guy I knew was. Fixing, he was with this band that they were recording their first record, and everybody was fixing to know who they were. It was called Toto. Wow. <laughs> but their drummer was one of the greatest session guys around, a guy named Jeff Picaro. And he liked me. He took me under his wing and started getting me auditions with Larry Carlton and Boss Gags and Rufus and, I mean, just all kind of people. And I was failing every one of them. Now, two weeks before my dad and my's deal was up, there was a year-long cap that we put on it. Well, this friend of mine, she was a madam, 
in New Orleans. She knew our deal was just about up. She goes, listen, I bought you a ticket. Just come on down to New Orleans and, and have fun for a weekend on, on me. Just come on down. And because that way you can get a, you know, kind of blow it out of your system before you have to go to work. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds really good to me. <laughs> so I went, you know, uh, I got in there. They had a limo that picked me up. And this is, again, they were on the tarmac. I had to exit from the back of the plane. This is before security and all that, 911. And I got in the limo with them, and they gave me a little thing of blotter acid. They gave me several joints. Uh, they popped open some champagne, and then they handed me a ticket. For a concert that night, it was Robert Palmer with the meters opening. Uh, well, fantastic. This is great. You know, so I went to the show because I was already, a, you know, like I said, a huge fan of Robert. show wonderful and then leo came up to me afterwards and he goes hey robert's looking for songs for his new record i'm gonna play him that stuff that you and i did so why don't you pop over to the crib sounds good to me so i did and robert and i and this girl he was with who was uh from the record company we were the only white people there this was over in ninth ward and robert put on uh, excuse me leo put on the first song and Robert listened to the whole thing. And afterwards, Zigaboo, who is a very famous drummer, is the meters drummer. He was there, too. Robert looked at Zig and said, man, great track, Zig. Not me. Okay, second track. Same thing. Who is that? It's not, it's not me. Third track, Zig, that's got to be you. Not me. Well, who is it? And he pointed at me. He goes, that's Donnie Wani which is a nickname they had for me. <laughs> and Robert looked at me. He goes, but you're white. Yeah. That was the only thing he said to me. <laughs> the only thing all night long. <laughs> so party ends. I go back to L.A. I'm packing. You know, I've just got a few days before I have to be back in Louisiana. Two days before it's over, I get a phone call one morning, and it's a British voice saying, 
My name is David Harper. I'm Robert Palmer's manager. What are you doing today? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Whatever you tell me to. Well, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, I turned him down. You know, I said, I am flattered like you cannot believe, you know. I've tried hard to be the drummer I've always wanted to be, but I just never got there. I said, I've been trying to get got jobs all year. Uh, everyone says I'm not there yet. I'm not seasoned, and I agree with them. I'm not. I know Robert works with the best musicians in the world. I mean, the very finest. And I said, I'm not going to get on a plane, go all the way down there, look like an idiot, you know, have to get on a plane, come all the way back because I didn't make the cut. I said, that would be incredibly embarrassing. So I'm going to spare ourselves the embarrassment and the fact you're going to spend money to get me down there. It was a long pause, and he came back. He goes, oh, let's look at it like this. He goes, the ticket's bought. It's, it's in six hours. You have time to make it. Get on that flight. Come down there. And if it doesn't work out, spend a week on the beach on us. But, hey, who knows? Something might click. Well, yeah, it did. I went down there. The first song they wanted to play was when I first off, when I walked into his house, it was like walking into a science fiction movie. Again, this is before globalization. There was real African music playing loudly. They were cooking Indian food. They were, um, there was people there from all over the world speaking their own native languages. I mean, I was, I had landed in a science fiction film and after the wonderful Indian food was over and the champagne was done, Robert said, hey, the studio's right across the street. Why don't we pop over there? Oh and I'm my. just like, oh, <laughs> it's, it been, it's been a great party. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great party while so it lasted, <laughs> but here it is. Here we are again. <clears throat> Go across the street. The first song he calls out, In Walks Love Again, and Jack Wallman, the keyboardist, started playing, and it was a second line, which I grew up on second line. Mm -hmm. That's a New Orleans mm -hmm. parade drum right. rhythm. Yeah. I, I, it's in my blood. Mm -hmm. So I jumped right on it, and boom, we got it in one take. And Robert looked at me, he goes, unpack your bags. Oh, <laughs> and that was the beginning of 25, 25 years story. Of, of getting after it. Was oh. this in the Bahamas? Yeah, he lived in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. oh, on so many levels, that's a great story of yeah. just, oh. Fantastic. I had it, again. Uh, life is a game. I agree with Bill Hicks. Life yeah. is a game, and it's just in how you play it. And yeah. all of what I just told you was just me playing the game as about as good as I could, and eventually it worked. Well, also there's the game, but there's also a theme of your discipline to get better and better and better, and to keep playing all those licks and making that choice yourself that you needed to do that, even though other people will were telling you you weren't seasoned. Well, to be able to make that choice at, what, 15? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> what, you know. <laughs> well, my dad, that came from my dad. I'll be quite oh. honest. He was, he worked hard for everything he did, and he was successful mm -hmm. every, at everything he did. Uh, and so, yeah, he instilled that in me, too. If you're going to do something you better just pull all the stops out and make it happen yeah. as good as you can. And if you're not good enough, we'll get better. 
And that was my whole thing was I wanted to be accepted mm-hmm. by this group of musicians who were making this brilliant music that was out there. I wanted to be included with those guys. And I especially liked Robert, and the universe kind of gave me what I was looking mm-hmm. for. Yeah. So were you with the band uh, up until the point that Robert died? There wasn't a band. Robert uh, would hire individuals that he thought would help fulfill what he was writing, what he was doing. Now, see, I got with him at an unusual time. Most everything he had done before I got with him was covers. He covered other people's material. Now, he did it so well, people think that he was the one that's writing it, but he wasn't. Now, when I got with him, that's when he decided to start writing. And you were co-writing with him on quite a few things. I was doing that. I was doing more arrangement sort of things. That's where I kind of, that was my Mm -hmm. function Mm -hmm. more than anything. And in pre-production, we worked all kind of things out. But yeah, he trusted me uh, to be that person Mm -hmm. uh, that he could count on and rely upon. And every great singer-writer that you look at, whether it be Billy Joel or Tom Petty or, you know, you just go down the line, they always have one drummer that they pull aside and go, no, you're the guy who mm-hmm. understands me mm-hmm. and what I want to do. I was that guy for Robert. Wow. And so everyone that we hired thereafter, it was just individuals that we thought, oh, this person would work good. Oh, that person would, you know, one day we were listening to a song. I went, man, Garth Hudson would really be great on this. Uh, keyboards for the band. Robert was like, oh, that's a great idea. Well, the next day, Garth Hudson was there. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like yeah. that. You're in, this, yeah. you're in this great scenario where whoever you dreamed and wanted mm-hmm. of was magically there the next day. Mm-hmm. Now, we did find the bass player because the rhythm section was important. And Frank and I were able to make any kind of music sound right. So he was really the only one that we kept during all that time. Now, there was also a guitarist, Eddie Martinez from New York, who was on the Riptide Sessions, that also became part of our fold. But other than that, Hmm. it was all hired guns. You know, every time was a different person, different people. And that was kind of the way it went for the whole time. Nice to be one of those uh, steady... Things in the ground that everything else was revolving around. It didn't bother me at all. <laughs> I was the I was the man for the job, and I was yeah. there to do it. You yeah. know that was that was my calling, and so yeah, I stepped up to the counter, and and we were able to make it happen. Hmm. So how many how many records did you do with him? Oh gosh, uh, let's see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, like twelve or thirteen. Wow, yeah. There were several studio records, and then there was live records, and then there was uh, the Addictions 1 and 2, which was all of our favorite tracks all on one record. Because there was a lot of B. uh, We would record all sorts of material. Sometimes it didn't make the record. So what we would do is when we'd put out singles, we'd slap one of those that didn't make the, the record onto the back of it. Now, ironically, sometimes those become the big favorites, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why we decided to do the Addictions 1 and 2, and that's when we included mm-hmm. all sorts of things that people necessarily hadn't heard before. But, yeah, there was there was a lot of recording going on when I was with him. It, just, mm-hmm. it was going on all the time. He, 
he never stopped making music. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we would finish a tour, that was usually the end of a three-and-a-half-year cycle. And then he would walk up to me at the at the party that we would be having to celebrate what we had just accomplished and finishing the world tour and everything. And yay, life is great. And he would walk up to me and he goes, well, this is all fine and good, but what are we going to do about it? <laughs> and he really would. He would levy that challenge to me. And that was him throwing down the gauntlet of like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, don't get complacent. We got work to do. And he would go and start working immediately on whatever he was feeling at the time. That was another good thing. No one ever told us what kind of music to make. We were always free to do exactly as we felt like doing. They trusted Robert to make the right decisions, and they were smart in that respect. So, yeah, we were constantly making music, you know. Within just a few months of him writing, I would be called in to start doing the pre-production and flying around and learning things and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And shortly thereafter, we'd be making a record, you know, make the record, then start the world tour, you know. That sounds pretty perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It worked for us for a number of years, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said, until the industry collapsed. Mm -hmm. And then it was over. When did you um, pick up with, when did uh, Brooks and Dunn come into your life? <laughs> <laughs> the shit fire howdy boys, yeah. Uh, they, uh, this, this is another story that I've never heard. I've well, been afraid it, to it ask it. Well, it did feel, <laughs> just reading about it, it did feel like a little bit of whiplash to me, so I wanted yeah. to... Hear it from you. <laughs> well, when I wasn't working with Robert, sometimes I would take on other things just to go do other things. Sure. And Back to your philosophy about it, yeah. hear everything, play and everything. I, and I had been living in Italy. I was living in Milan for four and a half years. And I, mortality hit me. Mm. You know, My parents aren't getting any younger. Uh, they don't really see me that much. You know, They see me when I'm home for Christmas sometimes. Or when we're on tour and we're close enough for them to come out, you know. Because Robert was best friends with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So it was always a, a good thing to have that. But uh, I just realized you know, mortality was creeping in. I need to get back there. And I needed to bond with my dad because he was really busy building his businesses. So even though he was a great dad and he was always working with me as a pitcher for baseball or slot cars, I mean, whatever my interest was, he helped me, you know, facilitate it. So he was a great dad in that respect, but I didn't really know him that well, and I felt it important to bond with him before he passed. So I came to Nashville to do that. They were had retired from Louisiana and were living in a little place called All Good, it's about 85 miles outside of Nashville. It's a little burg. And um, that's where they retired. And Nashville's only 85 miles away, so I moved there to be closer to them, not to be in the music business. I wanted nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, I just didn't like anything about what was going on in Nashville. And uh, But I moved there to be close to mom and dad. That was okay. Uh, Jose Rossi, the brilliant uh, percussionist, was also working with Patty and he called and asked if I would be interested in working with her, and that sounded like a challenge. I had no idea how big of a challenge it was. Mm-hmm. It was way bigger than I thought. It was a wonderful time in my life. I loved working with Patty. But uh, a friend of mine who I had grown up with was uh, 
a musical director for Brooks and Dunn, and apparently they were having trouble with their drummer. He's country drummers didn't know how to project. Uh, like a country drummer would play, and they would almost maybe project to the first two or three rows. Well, Brooks and Dunn is playing arenas, you know, twenty thousand seaters, and the drummers just didn't know how to project. Now that was one thing I was good at. It's one of the reasons Robert kept me was I would project to the person in the very back row at the very top, and if I got that butt moving, the rest would follow. <laughs> And so, and Kicks came to see me one time and saw me do that and heard me do that. And so uh, their drummer was just not doing very well. And so they approached me and asked if I would be interested. I really wasn't. But they made it to where it was worth doing, you know. They put enough money on the table. And they issued a challenge. Uh, I remember Kicks, he was funny what he said. He goes... Because he could see that I was a little hesitant about this. Because uh, I was quite happy with Patty. But he goes, i just let you know one thing. We're more stones than Jones. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay. And they were. I mean, they were playing these big arenas with these huge blow-up dolls. I mean, it was just, it was a wild and woolly. We're in the back of huge pickup trucks, you know, playing. I mean, it was, they were, they were a different cut of cloth. And... Um, I was wanting to get out of some debt I'd gotten into, and bankruptcy was not a way out. It was pay your way out. And so I thought I could make some good money with them, and and I saw it as a challenge. I knew their band needed help because the drummer had instilled in some bad habits in them, and I could possibly help them with these things, and I did. But it ended up uh, turning on itself. we worked with Reba McIntyre and her people. She's divorced her husband now, so I can say this. He was a jackass. <laughs> and he was horrible in the way he treated his people. Uh, he, he ruled by fear. Like there was one time the Kent, the little guitar player, he stepped out to do a solo, and I was back by the board, and he had all their names there, and he had a microphone. And I saw Kent step forward to play. And he did. He was, he was a great player. But all of a sudden, her husband, I won't say his name, hit the button and, and cursed Kent out in his ears yeah. while he's trying to play a solo, saying, you know, I'm paying you to smile. You know, you better smile. I want you to smile. So he started smiling and playing. But that was the – I mean, here this guy just interrupted him right in the midst of screaming in his ear, cursing at him telling him to smile. And and so the people were miserable. They were the most miserable bunch of people I'd ever seen before in my life. And luckily when we toured with them, even though it was the, it earned more money than any country tour had ever earned, um, we got offers from, from ZZ Top. We got offers from all sorts of people to go out on the next run. And I thought, well, great, let's get away from that because we dodged a bullet. But... Yeah, they decided to go back with them, and I'm like, oh, God. Mm. And it happened. The poison, the negative poison spread, mm. which it mm. will. Of course, yeah. And it did, <clears throat> and it infected the whole mm. bunch of them, and I became miserable. And I would be in the back listening to um, uh, Pantera, 
which is a speed metal band out of Dallas. While on tour with Perks and Dye? <laughs> yeah. I'd be in the back listening to Pantera writing short stories, and they'd be up front listening to shitty country music, drinking green beer. You know, there was a, just a real disconnect. And so uh, the uh, I, I've been driven all my life by guardians, uh, by angels, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. They spoke to me one night and told me what to do, and it was it was this. Quit your job, sell everything you have, pay off all your debt, take a serious vow of poverty, move to the middle of nowhere and write a novel. That was what I got one morning when I woke up. That was the answer to all the prayers I was sending out to what is, why am I so unhappy? Why am I the most well-paid, unhappy person? I mean, what is this? <laughs> I want out, you know, show me a way out. I woke up one morning and that's what I got. <laughs> and that's what I did. Can I put a few requests in and have you make them? <laughs> you seem to get spectacular results. <laughs> well, I do things that most other people, they're given the same information, but they don't mm-hmm. do anything about it. Sure. And that's the hard part is doing the work behind mm-hmm. something. And most people are just, most people live in fear, and you just can't do that. That was one thing when I went, I did do all the above things. I moved to a little 2,000-acre ranch in Chapel Hill, Texas, Mm. and a miracle happened because I had taken a vow of poverty. Seriously? A dead serious one. Like, don't take a job even Mm -hmm. to make any money Mm. for food. I had two Rottweiler dogs, you know, I mean, how is this going to work? Well, I just did what they asked. So I figured if I've done what I'm, the right thing, then I will be taken care of. That's just the way I looked at it. And I'll never forget, it was only took about three or four months. And I woke up one morning, I had 36 cents, and I had two bags of ramen. Now, my girls, they had I bought them a 50-pound bag. They had food. I always took care of them first. But there I was, and I'm like, well, okay, you know, how, how is this going to turn out? I've done everything you've asked. Here I am. What's next? And I, I, there's only one way to explain this: is it was a miracle. But I was I was given a call by the by the person who ran the post office there in Chapel Hill because I would pick up the mail for the ranch once a week, so I knew this guy. And he called me. He goes, Donnie. Here's a letter that arrived for you, and I think it's kind of important. It's from New York City, but I don't know how it got here because I know your name's not on this box. Matter of fact, you don't even have a box, but you have a letter. I'll be there in a second. And it was a check from Pepsi-Cola for the song Simply Irresistible for a reuse thing that they had done years prior that I have no idea still to this day how it got to me. But it got to me. And it was only 170 bucks, but that was a million dollars then. Suddenly, I got, I can take care of everything.
Everything's good. We keep moving forward. I keep writing. I keep doing what I'm doing. I'm suddenly taken care of. Now, what that miracle did for me was huge. It removed fear, doubt, and worry from my life in totality. It's gone. Because I know that if I do the right things and I work hard and I keep open to everything that's coming through at me, well, these people have my back. And if they took care of me like this, they're going to take care of me everywhere. So I don't need to worry about anything. And I never have since. So it, <clears throat> that's still true for you today? 100%. Absolutely. It's the only way to live is mm. move forward, you know, and don't worry. Don't fear anything. Don't just move forward and do what it is you're supposed to do. Work as hard as you're supposed to work, you know, put in the time. Make it happen. But don't worry about this stuff because that all will be taken care of. And it always has. So, yeah, it was invaluable, the things that I learned then during this time of exile. <laughs> when did the photography come in? During exile. Mm -hmm. See how these things work? Well, tell us about that. Bunker was the name of the fellow who's no longer with us, unfortunately. He was uh, one of my best friends who owned the ranch. And um, he knew I was a photographer then. I mean, I played around. I've been playing around with photography all my life. <laughs> but just taking, you know, just odd pictures. There was never any study or anything like that. And he came and he brought me a, a big lens one day. He goes, this is a, a macro lens. I never even heard of it. I didn't know what he's talking about. But he goes, here, take this, you know, take it out in the field. You'll, you, you might be surprised what you find. So, hey, I took him up on it. So that, that day, me and the girls went and took a hike. And I was taking pictures of, you know, algae and all sorts of stuff on tree limbs, tree bark, anything with textural and stuff. And then I was walking back after I'd finished, and I see this, a bunch of mechanical equipment. And so I just walked over to it. So once again, the angels, my mysterious unseen forces, were telling me, go over there, go over there, go over there, you know. And I've learned to listen to them. So I went over there, and there was uh, all sorts of equipment. And on the back of this one thing, uh, there was some unusual-looking rust, and I got down on it with this macro lens, and I was stunned at what I saw. I mean, it was an abstract expressionist painting. There's no other way to mm -hmm. describe it. I've always been into art. I've always gone to museums when we travel, so I've looked at art you know, everywhere, and I knew what I was looking at was good and unique and different. I mean, it's trash, it's rust, but it looks like a painting. So I took a couple of snaps of it, and ran to the Walmart because I wanted to see what I had captured. And I could, I could afford, they would give you a little sheet. And then out of that sheet, you would pick, okay, that one, mm -hmm. you know, to look at. So I asked them for the two that I had taken on the, on the sheet. And when I looked at it, I was just stunned. I was like, oh, my goodness, I have found something. So I bought another roll of film, which I really couldn't afford, but I had to. 45 miles back to the ranch. I run out there, you know, 
load the film up, run out there, and I'm ready to take a snap, and I go down, and there it is. Oh, it looks great. And I hit the trigger, and it the camera breaks. I'm going to vow poverty. I can't get it fixed, nor can I get a new one. But it was it. I couldn't take another photo. It was done. But I had these two things that I knew looked great, and I had to wait 10 years to get back out of poverty huh. to be able to afford a camera to be able to move forward and do this. Yeah. So, again, it was patience and waiting, and then but you know, when it was time to go, I got a new camera, and I went out for two years and got nothing, nothing. Zero. I couldn't get anything. I couldn't make the camera work. It wasn't like my old manual. It was digital. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get into the digital age. But the camera didn't respond like I wanted it to. So I uh, I called. I, there was a friend uh, that I had found on Facebook, a guy named Andrew Stearns, who I thought was one of the best photographers I'd ever seen, ever. So I contacted him and asked him to go out to dinner. And I peppered him with questions. I was like, you know, I need to know what this camera does so I can get out and do something with it because I'm busting the gut to get out there and take some of these pictures like I had found 10 years ago, but I can't until I can, you know, learn how to use this camera. And he goes, just put it on manual and take pictures and have fun, stupid. <laughs> I said, that's it? He said, that's it. Go have fun. That's what it's all about. I went out the next day, and I hadn't stopped since. Rodney, I'm curious, you know, as another brilliant photographer. and He is good. Yeah, yeah he's good enough, I guess, you know. Now, I, he knows how much I actually think of him in general, but also his photography. Um, how, how do you, what happens to you when you hear that story of those, that moment when you have something and that urge that you just have to be doing this? How do you relate to that? It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's something that's, I, I, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It is something that is there that you, yeah, you just, you have to get out and go. I, in fact, I, I remember when, I remember when you first went digital. I remember you mm -hmm. telling me this, this, the same story. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know how this, but you, you know, you stuck with it. And now some of the stuff that he's doing is, I mean, I, I get, I get jealous of some of the things that he's doing. It's, I, I want to go shoot what he's shooting, but mm -hmm. I don't want to copy him you know it's but it's yeah the where you where you've gone with it it's it's pretty it's pretty cool i you know the i mean i yeah i'm I feel like I'm sidetracked on what you were asking me. That's all right. Just take it where it goes. I'm just yeah. curious one photographer listening to another and that experience. Well, uh, well just, Rodney responded. He had a call. He was taking pictures of people. You know, now the people turned out to be pretty famous people. Yeah. And that was his little niche. Mm -hmm. But something, I don't know what, because we've never talked about it, but something pulled at him to go do something different. And it was a big pull. It wasn't just a little hunch. It was something major that came talking to him and said, get your butt out in the ocean, get your butt out in the field, you know, make this happen with this. And he responded. 
Well, you know, I, I guess, you know, what you're, what you were asking and it's, it's kind of a similar thing, um, for just for different reasons. But I, I started when I was 10 years old shooting underwater with my dad because he taught scuba and he did underwater photography just as a hobby, you know, it wasn't ever anything more, but, um, uh, he sold his business and so I just, and that's all I was really shooting. So I, I quit that and I, I probably didn't pick up a camera seriously for another 15 years. And it's when I, I got back into it, I, I had so many friends in the area, like when I met you and started just shooting music stuff mm -hmm. and that just started to snowball. But then as digital got easier there were more and more photographers coming in and just seems like every day there was somebody else, you know, taking the gig. And I got tired of competing and I was like, I, I need to do something different. I need to stand out. Anybody can go and just, you know, do portrait photography. And that's how I, you know, got, you know, got into more of the, you know, nature and abstract and the stuff, I, I guess that's why I do the crazy stuff that I do, you know, putting myself in front of sharks and crocodiles and because, you know, anybody, and charging you know, horses, yes. yeah, anybody mm -hmm. can go, you know, do portrait photography, but not everybody can put themselves in front of some of the things that I'm putting myself in front of. And that's, that's my way of standing out and trying to, to do something different. So, and, and, and so he points out that it was techno technological reasons, but there's also something he's not talking about. And that's what is that that reached in there and told him, mm -hmm. go do this, go do this. How did they, how was it expressed to where he took notice, made sense of it, went and, and then he had to do it. And that's where everybody falls short. You're all, all these ideas come to everybody. But there's work behind it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to face fears and all kind of stuff to make it happen. And that's where everyone falls short. They will not move forward because of the fear of having to deal with all this stuff. But it did. It came knocking at his door. And he and I were, you know, talking a lot then. But this just came out of nowhere. You know, suddenly he's sending back these shots that I'll never forget the first one was that manta ray which I've never forgotten since yeah. <laughs> I still ask him about that picture because it was one of the most gorgeous pictures of a manta ray I'd ever seen and I was just the beginning you know he went much further than that and his response we're going to talk about you like you're not in the room right now Ronnie but his response to what that is inside that he's responding to is what gets communicated to me and other people that respond to that work. It might be for very different reasons. It might be I'm seeing something, feeling something that may never have been your intention, but that 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 artistic connection happens in that space between the artist and and the receiver. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's you know I guess you're you know talking about you know inspiration or what makes you you know, what drives you. And for me, I, I don't, I don't have a clue. I mean, it's just, it's just something that I love to do. It's like when I was a kid, I, you know, like most, you know, I, I wanted to be a rock star. 
but I didn't have that drive like you did to sit there and play or, you know, I'm going to go take a year off and I'm going to do nothing but listen to these things mm-hmm. over and over and over until I get it right. And I didn't have that to sit in the room and play guitar for hours until I got it right. But I can go out for hours, you know, days, weeks with my camera and just shoot and shoot and shoot until I get it right. Why? I don't, I don't have a clue. I just, you don't need to, I just, I just, <laughs> just love doing just it. Just respond you know? to it. So. Yeah. Yeah. He did the right thing. He responded mm-hmm. to it. You know, he did the work necessary to not only get out in the field, but to do it well. And to be living uh, in the proximity of Rodney during the last year where you weren't traveling. I mean, it was, it's, it was visceral. It was, you could only, you could feel it when we were together and talking about travel and, um, so it's going to be real interesting when you make that first trip after a year I, and a half. I'm going to be curious to see what it what happens because well, it's and it's like we were talking about on the way over here, you know. And I don't think you've really you haven't played the drums in in a year, and I I really haven't taken any photos in a year except for the occasional you know, bird in my backyard kind of thing. <laughs> but it's, mm-hmm. You know, I, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, am I going to pick it right back up where I was mm-hmm. or is it going to be a completely different? Well, I think, oh, interesting, I think, yeah. I think, I think most all artists, but especially, you know, someone like yourself who goes in the field to do it or someone like myself who plays music, we had to stop. Mm-hmm. We had to quit, you know, and we had to do what was necessary to help the situation which was quarantine. I didn't take a picture mm-hmm. for a year. I didn't touch a drumstick for a year. But that's what I was talking about, this new normal that we're getting into. What are these new inspirations going to be? Mm-hmm. Where is this going to push us? You know, What is this going to make us do because of this situation? Because I know for a fact this was for a reason. It wasn't arbitrary. Now, what is that reason? Well, it's going to be different for every person, just about. But we're all being lifted up to be able to face whatever it is we need to do. And I really hope that people respond because, again, like we said earlier, most people don't. They get afraid and, and back away. But we're being given a really beautiful chance to to move into a new normal, whatever that's going to be, not only for ourselves but for each other, how mm-hmm. we react to each other. It's, it, it, it's a miraculous thing waiting to happen, and I just hope people push forward. You know, I know some will. I know some won't. But I hope. Hopefully more. enough will. Exactly. <laughs> well, and one of the real gifts for us starting this podcast about a year ago, and we always joke about who starts a podcast about passports and travel in the <laughs> beginning of the <a> pandemic, <laughs> what worked for us was talking to so many people that were happy to talk to us because they weren't going anywhere. Right. But it was the stories that we started to collect about exactly what you're talking about. I'm so used to doing this, and it might be on automatic pilot, but it's still really good. And, I, and now I'm, I have to reevaluate who am I as an artist and other ways to share that art. Mm-hmm. And we just heard some incredible stories about creativity and response. And so we're, we're capturing a lot of those, but it's just what you're talking about. Well, we, tell, her, tell her what you did for the past year. 
<laughs> well, you can't stop so, now. Since we're here. See, I, I'm, I tra- I've traveled most all my life. I'm used to spending time in a hotel room. And there's, I learned how to in, enjoy myself waiting for the gig. So um, I learned how to be by myself in a room, how to, in a, how to you know, read a book, you know, go write a little bit, go do something, anything. Watch a, a movie you're interested in watching. I mean, anything. And you learn, I learned how to entertain myself by doing nothing. And I realized I was in the same position again. I was, it was just going to take a lot longer before <laughs> the gig started mm-hmm. again. I, but I had this time to myself and I had to um, relax. I had to enjoy myself. Now, I was in a little bitty room, little bitty with a cot, a little one single cot in my computer. And I had I had watched a TED Talk with Joyce Carol Oates, who's a brilliant writer. And she said, you know, all you people talk about writer's block. She goes, I'm mm-hmm. sick of hearing it. Because mm-hmm. if you've lived a life, you have stories. I don't care what kind of life it is. You have stories. So guess what? write the stories and boom it's hit something in me that i had all because i've been a writer i've already written four no, uh, four novels basically and but there was one that was waiting to be written and it was all these stories that i had when i left home for the first time my mom and dad were you know very much a product of the 50s very straight normal people and uh, globalization had not hit. So when I left home for the first time, I, I didn't even know people lied to each other. I, I didn't know that existed. I was that naive. And I went to Los Angeles and just, wham, I mean, this world opened up to me. And next thing I know, I'm having lunch with King Vidor. You know, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in an alleyway with Tom Waits, who I didn't even know mm. at the time. And we're talking. I mean, there was all these weird events that I remember like a snapshot. I remember what people were wearing, what they were saying, what we were eating, the smells, everything. But the rest of my life is a blur. So I had these stories that she was talking about that I remembered well. So I started writing them down. I've already written 45 of them. I've got about another 92 to write. But I did. I wrote a book with one finger on my cot on my side. That's what I did every day. And I did. I typed a, a book with one finger. Was that intentional? I mean, or can you Absolutely. type with one finger? <laughs> well, I, that was the thing is I don't like typing on a, uh, it just, it's too bound up. Mm-hmm. And I like a big ergonomic keyboard. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm back there on this little cot in this little room. There's no room for any of that kind of stuff. So I had my laptop, and I got really good. I got really fast at one-finger typing. I mean, really fast. And I enjoyed the process. And so I did. I just wrote, you know, I start writing at 10 o'clock at night, and I'll quit at 4 o'clock in the morning. And then I'll rummage around and find a, uh, you know, a, a movie to watch or an animation to watch or, you know, and I go to sleep around eight or nine 
wake up at three in the afternoon, do my little things, 10 o'clock at night, you know, start typing away. <laughs> and right now this stuff's in the hands of an agent, and so we're moving all of that forward too. But, yeah, that that's what I well, did during really my exciting. time off. And yeah. I, Oh, and, I, and the best part was being with my mother. Hmm. I got this, she, I could leave out this little back door, and she had a little back door. And I would go see her every night, and we would talk for an hour because she loves to talk. And then I would hand her the laptop because she wanted to read the story. She's an avid reader. So she got to know me in a way that she didn't know because I left home at 16. So she didn't, as much as we loved each other and we're close, there was a lot that she didn't know. So we were able to spend this time with each other, which was a gift during this pandemic. And I was able to give her these stories, which she was able to know me way, way better. And I think what a gift that is, especially before she passes on to this next plane. And she will eventually, but she's going to do it knowing me better. How many I, times did she read those go, you did what? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mom. Uh, I had no idea <laughs> you were not supposed to, Mom. <laughs> doing that. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was interesting, really interesting response. Mm. I, I, I was so happy for it, mm. you know. And, of course, if something was curious to her, well, she would tell me. And then I would go fix it, you know. So we had we wow. we had a great we had a great thing. Uh, you had a great reader as well as getting to know your mom and vice versa. All of the above, yeah, absolutely. So what's bringing you back to Austin? Well, if we may be so fortunate to say yeah. you are coming back to Austin, which is like our backyard. Well, I've been going blind for a number of years, and uh, I've been trying to get the eye operation that was necessary, but. Uh, the problem, the problem was uh, timing, you know, and uh, I was due to have it done this one time, and then I lost that insurance, and then they didn't take the next insurance that I got, then I had to find a new doctor, and then by the time I found them, there were some preliminary things we had to do, and then we got ready to do it, and I was two days away from getting it done, and then, bam, lockdown. So I'm sitting here in Austin, and I'm going like, well, what do I do? Mm. I don't know. And I've traveled enough, because this stuff would happen all the time in Asia while we were traveling. Mm. There was always something going on there where we'd have to mask up or you know do things. So I was used to that. But I could just tell this was something different. You know, when they do a lockdown and then mm-hmm. cancel elective surgeries on this wait a second. So I was I had I was faced with a divergence in the road. You know, do I stay here in Austin where there's gonna be a whole lot of people coming through every day bringing God knows what, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, or do I go be close to my mom and go to the Smokies and I have this new travel trailer and I could live in the state mm-hmm. park there and mm-hmm do my writing so I think I'll go there instead uh, and that was my reasoning but it turned out to be a great reason because again this thing with my mom happened now I come back to Austin because one I got the second vaccination so I felt emboldened now to go out you know amongst people I was I didn't want to before because I'm I, I can catch the stuff real easy and I didn't want to die in a hospital. 
So I stayed in my room. I quarantined as I was told and asked. But when I got that second vaccination, I felt emboldened. Now, I was still going to wear my mask, and I'm still going to quarantine. I'm going to do all that stuff still. But it came time to get it done. I really liked the doctor I had found here, and I wanted her to do the eye surgery. So uh, I came back here to do that, and then there was also three different records that were waiting on me to get back here to do drums mm. on. They were I was lucky yeah. that they waited on me. Yeah fortunate should i say and they did and i've been in the studio for the last three and a half weeks doing all of that and i've been having a blast and i've been getting my eye surgery done i got my first the, the first eye was done just last week so that's that's why i'm a here well we're glad you are aren't we rodney yeah i just i hope we can keep him but I think the road calls. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm going to. I always will come here because I have mm-hmm. such a beautiful circle of friends that mm-hmm. I work with, I get inspiration from. So I'll always come back here to see those people. But, yeah, there's the road is calling me. and Well, hopefully we'll be included in that group always, of people. Always. Because no, I think you've become my new addiction. <laughs> we'll have to do Addictions 3 album or something. <laughs> I mean, I feel so blessed just to have you here in live in our studio um, to share all of this with you and have you share it with us. It's just been a magical hour, and I can't thank you enough again, Rodney, for introducing. And like like most of our guests that we've had, you know, there's there's so many more stories that we've got to have him back because I think we've just scratched the surface. So. And we have this wonderful vehicle for doing it, so we can just keep talking. So, absolute. Thank you so much. What My a, pleasure. What My pleasure. A pleasure. Thank, you, thank you so much. For I'm just sitting me. here, kind of resonating like a tuning fork. You know, it's just, it's just well, that, been a wonderful well, hour. Well, that's when you're doing the right things. Is when people start vibrating, and get inspired, and mm-hmm. that's when something's happening. So if I'm able to be a little part of that, I'm very happy about that. Well, you've been more than a little part of it, so thank you. <laughs> so enough. And we would also like to thank, as we mentioned before, our producer, Brock Glenn Thomas, who is just amazing and responsive and unfailingly positive and keeps us on the straight and narrow, at least technologically. And we didn't need him here today. <laughs> we did it, finally. No, I talked to, I talked to him before you guys showed oh, up. Okay. <laughs> Come on, we got to be honest about this. We're getting close. <laughs> we also want to thank Rupert Neve Design for assisting us with our equipment. That's an honor to um, be working with uh, his people. And we always like to give a little pat of the heart and a nod to Rupert and everything he's meant to the audio world. And then Donovan Frankenreiter for our intro and our outro music, which we are very grateful and thankful for. And we also want to thank all of you, our listeners, for tuning in and letting us share these amazing people and wonderful stories. So thank you for tuning in again, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you.